<laughs> I tell you this with those kids, if you ever wonder what the kids are taught downstairs while you're upstairs, it's the Word of God. <laughs> it's the Word of God. They're getting it. They're sharing it. They, they're understanding it. And uh, what an awesome thing to see at this young age that them... Uh, Getting to know the Word of God. Well, we're going to continue our study through the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 12. If you need a Bible to follow along with us, raise your hand. And, and Nick and Richard have Bibles in their hand. They'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 12 this morning. The title of my message this morning is Christmas from a Heavenly Perspective. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together. Thank you for the kids, Lord, that uh, Lord, you're, you're bringing up with children that, that know you, Lord, and have a relationship with you, Lord. And they know your word. They're learning your word. And, and Lord, it's a blessing to see as a congregation. Lord, we pray your continued growth for these children in their spiritual walk, Lord, and, and just bless them. And thank you for the parents and the time spent with them. And Lord, thank you for your word and this opportunity that we have to, to dig into it this morning. And uh, we pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, that they would make that commitment to you today. We thank you for our time together, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at a Christmas story from a place in Scripture where you may have not thought you would find the Christmas story in. Revelation chapter 12. Now, you'll never see a Christmas movie like this, but if you did, it would probably rank with one of the the most weirdest, unusual Christmas movies you've ever seen. Because chapter 12 opens up with this unusual cast of characters. We have a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. We have a fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And we have a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And I know what you're thinking. This isn't like any Christmas story you've ever heard before. Can we go back to the shepherds and the wise men? Go back to the manger scene. Certainly, let's go back to Luke chapter 2. There's a born unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Listen, instead of Mary and Joseph, angels and shepherds, we have a different cast all together. What could the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 12, and all these characters have to do with Christmas? Actually, a lot more than you may think. See, this is Christmas from... And Heavenly's perspective. This is the backstory of Christmas. So all around us, we're living, there, there, there's an invisible world, a supernatural realm that has a dramatic effect on the physical realm in which you and I live. In fact, it would be mind-boggling if, if right now God were to somehow pull aside the veil, pull aside the curtain, and enable us to see the, the invisible, the spiritual world. I mean, we'd see the angels where they exist. We'd see the demons where they exist. The realm where Satan and God is this invisible world. Well, here in chapter 12, we're given this behind-the-scene look of what's going on in the supernatural world. Now, in order for us to understand the behind-the-scenes glimpse of the activity that's taking place, 
John here in Revelation, he's using symbols. As it's being, you know, revealed to him, he's going, well, it's like this and it's like that. But he's using a very figurative language, but it's full of meaning. Our job is to interpret and to understand the reality behind these symbols and what they represent. So if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. Number one, a woman with child. Number two, a seven-headed dragon. Number three, a war in heaven. First, let's look at a woman with child. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Well, who is this woman here? Well, throughout history, there's been a number of suggestions. The Catholic Church uh, would claim this is a description of the Virgin Mary, but for a number of reasons, that can't be the case. First of all, Mary never had birth pains in heaven. And verse 6, it says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That never happened to Mary, nor will it ever happen to Mary. Uh, secondly, there are those who believe that this woman spoken of here is the church. There are, there are two good reasons why that's not the case. The first being the church has already been caught up into heaven back in chapter 4, so that what we're reading here are the things that have taken place after the church age. The second reason is that the church, as in verse 5, doesn't give birth to the one who will rule and reign, speaking of Jesus. Rather, Jesus gave birth to the church. Not the other way around. So, really, the only way to take this in context in which all the other symbolism that is mentioned here fits, makes sense, is to see the identity of this woman as the nation of Israel itself. Now, some of the commentators you may have read uh, that were written in, in the early 1900s saw the woman as the church because the nation of Israel had not yet been reborn didn't make sense to them, but now because Israel had become a nation once again, 1948, we gathered there, Jerusalem, its capital, 1967, this section of scripture really seems to come into focus. Now how do we know for sure that this woman represents Israel? Well, whenever symbolism is used, uh, we need to trace back that symbol. Really, to understand any particular issue, if you trace it back to what is called the principle of first mention, it becomes a lot clearer. In other words, where and in what context were these things first mentioned in Scripture? Uh, and, and, well, then the clues are significant if you look at it from that point. This woman here, she's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars is on her head. There's only one other place in Scripture that you'll find the mention of all these symbols clustered together in one place. It's found in the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verse 9. It's the story of Joseph. Remember, he had a dream, and in his dream he saw the sun and the moon and the stars, 11 stars bowing down and worshiping him. The sun, the moon, and the stars represent his father, mother, and 11 brothers. Now we know that dream eventually came true, but it wasn't until after Joseph's 11 brothers sold him into slavery Joseph then overcame trials of false accusations, unjust imprisonments, till Joseph became the second one in command over all of Egypt. And that's when his dream was fulfilled and his brothers came and bowed before their brother Joseph. So then the symbols here in Revelation 12 make it clear that the woman here represents the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Now, 
all of who are descendants of Joseph's father Jacob, Joseph being himself represented as the twelfth star. Next, who is this child I've spoken here in verse 2? Well, verse 5 gives us a clue. She, in verse 5, speaking of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Again, going back to the rule of first mention, Psalm 2, verse 7 and 9 says this, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the same picture that's being used here in, in Revelation chapter 12. So the child that is spoken of clearly speaks of Jesus. Now this brings us to point number two, a seven-headed dragon. Look at verse three. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now that absolutely sounds like something out of a Godzilla movie. I mean, you know, some weird creature, some enormous dragon. Uh, you know, I, I Google searched a, a you know seven-headed dragon, and to my surprise, Walmart has a toy seven-headed dragon. I'm thinking, why would you create a dragon, especially when you see who this dragon is? This bizarre-sounding creature, this one called the dragon. Who is he? Well, clearly from verse nine, we know who he is. He's the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. What about? the seven heads and the ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Well, these two are symbols. The word head comes from the word diadem, also translated crown. This symbolizes power and authority and intelligence. Understand, our adversary, the devil, is very, very smart. He's very, very intelligent. He's been doing what he's been doing for a very long time, and, and, and he's does it quite well. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says this, If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. See, Satan has fooled so many people in this day and age especially, thinking that he doesn't even exist, while in reality he's controlling their very way of life. Ten horns here speak of the ten confederated nations in the last days that will be working with the, the Antichrist. And, and later we'll see that the dragon gives the Antichrist his authority. In other words, the dragon, the devil is going to energize this charismatic coming world leader that will have ten nations working for him together with him. And we'll look at all of that when we get to chapter 13, the next chapter here. Not this morning. Well, the next question that's often asked is actually dealt with here in verses 3 and 4. The question often comes up, well, where did the devil come from? Well, verse 4, we kind of have, have a little bit of an answer there. Verse 4 says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Well, this goes all the way back to when Satan rebelled against God and he took one-third of the angels with him. Those fallen angels are now uh, demons doing his dirty work. They are the, the Satan stormtroopers, if you will. According to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, 
uh, describes Lucifer as the power behind the king of Tyre. Lucifer was not only a worship leader in heaven, but it says that he was unparalleled in beauty and uniquely anointed. In other words, he wasn't nearly, merely a, a good musician. He was actually a type of musical instrument. God created him with timbrels, or what we know as a tambourine for hands, and a pipe, pipe, pipe organ, pipe organ for a voice. Better voice than mine. And year after year, and, and however long it was, he would lead worship in heaven. That until, that's until he began to wonder why all this praise is going somewhere else and not to him. He, he developed an eye problem. Isaiah uh, 14, 13 through 15 describes his eye problem. He says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You know, for those of us that, that serve the Lord, we must keep this in mind because the same tendency can creep into us from time to time. All it takes is that one thought to think, well, here I am doing this and no one else seems to appreciate me. No one knows all I've done. I've done all this work and no one seems to, seems to see or care. Be careful. This was the sin that Lucifer committed. He was then cast out of heaven along with a third of his followers, and has become the devil, the dragon, the accuser, the adversary. As I said, he's got his followers, the demons. Now what do we see this dragon doing in verse 4? Look at verse 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So if you're picturing in your mind the little setting of Jesus' birth, and you're picturing it's nice and quiet and serene, and you got this quiet little baby lying in the manger with the sheep, you know, bang, and Mary and Joseph looking contently at the new little baby, and, and you know, the, they're probably singing songs like the cattle are lowing, the baby awake, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, and that's a so peaceful scene. Behind the scenes, it was not going on that way at all. Behind the scenes, there is a war waging, a war that would last all throughout the Old and the New Testament. If Israel was like a pregnant woman through whom the Messiah would be born, then it makes sense of how often Satan would attack Israel and try to destroy Israel from the very beginning. If Satan could have destroyed Israel, then he would have wiped out the line through which the Messiah would come, therefore preventing Jesus from coming and redeeming the, the world. See, let's get back to the theme of what I brought up this morning. The theme of this message is Christmas from a heavenly perspective. From a heavenly perspective, Revelation 12 gives us the big picture of what Christmas is all about and why Satan hates it so much. It's all about the birth of Christ, the Messiah, and the devil trying to stop it. This cosmic feud goes all the way back to the very first book in the Bible. There in Genesis chapter 3, there in verse 15, the first Christmas passage, the first messianic scripture. This came after Adam and Eve sinned against God, ate of the forbidden fruit, and now the curse is coming upon humanity. And the Lord says, as a result of this, he says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Effectively, the Lord is putting Satan on notice. There's coming one that's going to crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Who is this we're speaking of? Jesus. Who's crushed the head of the devil? Jesus. Whose heel did the devil bruise? Jesus. 
Remember Isaiah 53 verse 5 told us of Christ, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. At the cross, Satan was crushed, and Jesus was bruised. I don't know if that would make a good Christmas song or not. I think it would, you know. I'm dreaming of a day when Jesus crushed the head of Satan. You know, where the treetops glisten as Jesus risen from the dead to save man from the sin. You know, someone should write that song. I think I would like it. May not be a song about it, but but that's what happened. There in Genesis chapter 3 was the first announcement of Jesus' birth. And from that point on, the devil knew his days were numbered. He knew that the promised Messiah would come, so obviously he tried to stop him from even being born by completely wiping out the Jewish race from existence. Go from the first book of the, of the Old Testament to the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus. There the Jewish population was growing. And Pharaoh of Egypt saw them as a threat and he gave the decree that all Jewish baby boys should be killed at birth. Yet through God's providence, a baby was preserved and entered into Pharaoh's court was trained there and ultimately became the great lawgiver. We know him as Moses himself. But there in the very beginning, Pharaoh trying to do away, wipe out all the Jews, stop them. Then you move to the period of the judges. You have Satan using Israel's neighbors trying to destroy them, not unlike so much we see happening today. Yet God preserved his people through all these assaults and all these attacks and raised up judges like Samson and, and Deborah and Gideon and others. Or, or how about when Satan inspired King Saul to murder David, wanting to kill David to stop the messianic line? Why? Well, because David was the, in the family line of Christ. David, Christ was of the root and the offspring of David. But that too failed. Let's move to the book of Esther. We have the plot of the anti-Semite Haman to wipe out all the Jews. He even had the gallows erected where they'd be hung. Yet God providentially placed the beautiful Queen Esther in the palace for such a time as that, and she intervened for her people. Ultimately, Haman was hung in his own gallows that he built. Yet the devil wasn't done. We move to the New Testament Having failed to wipe out the people of God in the Messianic line, he attempted to murder the Messiah himself before he could do his saving work. Remember those wise men that blew into town? You know, as they saw the star, they wanted to know where the king of the Jews was. They wanted to worship him. And the last thing to do is to, to tell that to a crazy man like King Herod. You know, Herod directed them to Bethlehem, but he said, when you have found the child... Come back and tell me where he is so I can go and worship him myself. Yeah, right. This guy, he was paranoid. He was fearful that someone was going to take his throne. He'd killed his wife. He'd killed his son. In fact, it was said of Herod at one time, it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. So when he heard that a king was born, he felt threatened. So he asked them, come back once you find him and tell me where he is. But his intentions all along were to kill the child. That's why when the wise men didn't come back, he went wacko. Ordered all the baby boys born in Bethlehem to be killed two years old and under. Again, satanically influenced the directions and the actions of those on earth to kill the Messiah. And again, that's why we read in verse 4, the dragon was there ready to devour the child as soon as it was born. But God intervened. 
sparing the, the infant Jesus from the dragon. Of course, Christ was born. But then, you know, the attack still continued. Jesus, remember, when the Lord was beginning his ministry, the devil tempted him there in the wilderness. He showed them all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he says, all this I will give you and the power with it, for it's mine to give if you will worship me. What is interesting is that Jesus didn't refute that statement. If it was not true, Jesus would have said so. Jesus didn't refute it because it was technically true. Satan is the god of this world. He had control of the kingdoms at that time. And the devil was saying in effect to Jesus, look, we both know why you're here. You're here to purchase back that which was lost in the garden. I'll give it to you on a silver platter. No suffering, no bearing the sins of the world. I'll give it to you if you just bow down and worship me, what he's been wanting all along. And of course, Jesus said, the Lord God only shall you worship and him only shall you serve. But the point is the devil is trying to divert him, Jesus, from his course. Even after Jesus started his ministry, the attacks continued in his hometown of Nazareth, of all places. Remember, they wanted to put Jesus to death, and they actually took him to the edge of a cliff, and they were going to throw him over the cliff. And I love what the Bible says in Luke 4, that he calmly passed through their midst and went his way. (laughs) They thought they were in control, and where'd he go? He was just right here. You know, he just kind of walks away. Not today, guys, not today. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. That reminds us that, as I shared last week, that as a Christian, you are indestructible until God is done with you. But when your hour does come, when your date with destiny arrives, when your moment to enter eternity is here, there is nothing you can do to change it. For it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. That's what the Bible says. That's what's going to happen. That's why you want to live your life well and and for the glory of God in the interim. You want to make sure you're right with the Lord. Well, Jesus' hour finally would come, the hour he would suffer and die for the sins of the world. It may have looked as if the devil prevailed. Yeah, Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He was crucified on the cross. But that brings us back to the whole purpose of Christmas. That's why Jesus came who was born to die. That's why Satan wanted to stop Jesus before he could redeem the world. That's why Satan wants to kill Christmas. Listen, the devil doesn't care if you shop till you drop during this time. He doesn't care if you decorate your trees. He doesn't care if you put up millions of lights on your house, you know. He doesn't even care if you say Merry Christmas. As long as you don't actually take the time to contemplate what Christmas is all about. Satan knows he can't stop Christmas. So you'd rather we just not understand it, uh, you know, that we would not just think about its true significance. The little baby born in the manger came to this earth to shed his blood and give his life for you and me in the ultimate sacrifice upon the cross. That's why red is the color of Christmas. Not because Santa wears red, not because holly berries are red, not because we like red wrapping paper. Because red is the color of the blood of Jesus that was shed at the cross. He was born to die so that we might live. You know, sometimes in our attempts to beautify and sanitize Christmas, we, we might miss the essential message. But, but this is what we're seeing with Christmas in the book of Revelation. We're seeing Christmas from a heavenly perspective. What's really going on behind the scenes. You know, the Bible says, Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. Then you want to talk about a Christmas tree. It's not the one you buy it a lot and put on the roof of your car and decorate it at home or, or spend way, way, way too much money on a fake tree like 
I did this year, but no, the Christmas tree is the one that Jesus hung on, bore the sins of the world. So this dragon of Revelation 12 was fiery red as he tries to stop the first Christmas, but it didn't work out so well for him. The plan backfired. Now, some of you may be thinking, yeah, but what about the cross? When Jesus was nailed to the Roman cross, he was hanging there, bleeding to death. Didn't Satan win? Well, Satan probably thought he did. He probably thought, yeah, I got him now. I got him right where I want him. I'm destroying his life. I'm crushing him now. But Satan really didn't read the fine print. Fine print comes from John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus, speaking of his life, said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again, this command I have received from my Father. I am sure that the resurrection of Christ was a shocker to this seven-headed, ten-horned red dragon trying to kill the male child that thwart the plan of God. Jesus coming back to life ruined his plans. The resurrection enabled Jesus to offer everlasting life to all those who would believe in him. His plan, Satan's plan, backfired. He was unable to, to, to be stopped. He was unable to stop the Messiah from being born. He was unable to stop the Messiah from finishing his redemptive plan. He was unable to stop Jesus from rising from the dead. He was unable, unable to stop Jesus from being exalted into heaven. And he will be unable to stop Jesus from coming back to rule and reign over this earth. So verse 5 we read, She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. This child who was born in Bethlehem, John says, is not just a baby. He rules all the nations with a rod of iron, an iron scepter, and he's enthroned with God. You know, if this were a movie, you might imagine a few words on the bottom of the screen that, that read something like, you know, thousands of years later, dot, dot, dot. And it's going to happen all throughout this chapter. You see, Jesus ruling with the rod of iron is a picture of the future reign of Christ during the millennial period. See, going back to sort of the overview of prophetic events, in my understanding of Scripture, the next event on the prophetic calendar would be the rapture of the church where God, Jesus, comes back in the clouds to take us, His church, home to be with Him. On the heels of that, the Antichrist will then be revealed. Then the Great Tribulation period follows seven years, and it all culminates at the Battle of Armageddon and the Second Coming of Christ. At that point, the millennial reign of Christ begins on the earth. That word millennia means a thousand years, so this is a thousand year reign of Christ. At that time, the Lord uh, binds up Satan, he chains him up for a thousand years. We return with Christ during this time, and we've gone up to be with the Lord in the air, now we're coming back in our glorified bodies. And during this millennial reign of Christ, Jesus is ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. Now, why does he do that? Well, because not everybody is going to want to be ruled by Christ. You say, oh, I don't, I don't understand. Listen, not everyone who will be in this millennial period necessarily wants to be under the rule of Jesus. There will be survivors from the tribulation and there will be their descendants because they'll live a really long time. So so there'll be a perfect righteousness rule for a thousand years. But in the very end, there's going to be a final short-lived rebellion that will quickly be squashed. But during the millennial reign, not only does Christ rule with a rod of iron, but the Bible teaches that we also, as believers coming back with Christ, will rule and reign with them. 
Jesus told of the parable of the talents to the faithless servant who longed for his master's return, wisely invested in his life and resources. Jesus said this in Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler of many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Have you ever wondered what that meant? That you rule over many things? That's what the, what the millennial reign is all about. We'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. Now again, if this was a movie, we'd see a few more words at the bottom of the screen. This would say, meanwhile, back on earth, dot, 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 look at verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she was a, has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now we've talked about this before and we'll look at it again in future studies, but when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to negotiate a peace treaty with Israel. But three and a half years or 1,260 days into the seven-year tribulation period, He's going to enter into the newly rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem and demand to be worshipped as God. At that point, the people of Israel, the women of verse 6, will realize that the so-called man of peace is not who he says he is, and he's going to be out to destroy them. Matthew 24, Jesus talks about that event, saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the Antichrist going into the temple, run for your life. Now, some believe that these, these, these Jews that they'll, they'll, who believe in Jesus as the Messiah now, they'll believe that they'll, they'll run to the rock city of Petra. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it's thought of that. But here's what we do know. Wherever they flee, God is going to get them there safely. That's what this text is saying. See, God is always taking care of his people all throughout history, and he will continue to do so. Remember, God told his people to take a seven-day journey, seven-day journey into the promised land. And that seven days turned into a 40-year journey because they grumbled and they complained and they moaned and, 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 and just disbelieved God. But you know what? God still took care of them. You know, I think we can get into the same pattern in our lives. When our life becomes a grind and we keep going around in circles and we start complaining, we start mumbling, we start grumbling, I don't like this and I don't like that. And God's trying to teach us, but we're not allowing Him to teach us because we're not yielding to what He's asking us to do. And we're just going to mumble and complain. And, 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 and here's the thing, you're going to say, all right, then you're just going to stay in this lesson over and over and over again. And days and years, a struggle. But see, that's what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness. But even so, what did God do with his people? Did he provide food for them in the wilderness? Absolutely. Did he rain manna from heaven? Absolutely. Did he fight, provide water for them? Absolutely. All their needs were met. Now, do we still believe that today? I think about the story of Elijah. Do you really believe that a raven came in when Elijah was out in the wilderness and fed Elijah from this bird, do we believe that? Can God take care of his people out in the wilderness? Well, not can he only take care of them, but he promises us that he will. We see this time in and time in again in Scripture. And the same thing is true for us. Whatever you're facing this morning, whatever struggles you are going through as believers, God will take care of you. God will provide for you. He'll provide whatever you need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Believe that promise. You see, here in the last half of the tribulation period, these Jews are fleeing 
the persecution coming against them. God's going to rescue them. He's going to take care of them, get them through the last half of the tribulation period, or 1,260 days, as it says here. This brings us to our third and final point of Christmas from a heavenly perspective. Number three, the war in heaven. Again, if this were a movie, the words at the bottom of the screen would be, meanwhile, back in heaven. Look at verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now remember, yes, a third, Satan was cast down with a third of the fallen angels with him, but he still had access to God in heaven. And he goes up there, the Bible says, he's the accuser of the brethren. He goes up there to harass us and accuse us before God. Saying things, oh, look at that guy, Tom. I mean, you you got him pastoring a church, but do you see the way he drives on the highway? That shows his real heart. Oh, man, he, man, he, he's not doing that. Man, you need to give up on him. Don't use him anymore. Satan accusing us before God. Now, if we didn't have that advocate, if we didn't have Jesus Christ interceding for us, we'd all be doomed. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Praise God that Jesus is alive and He's interceding for each one of us. So when Satan accuses us before God, Jesus says, Dad, Tom's one of mine. And, and, and I died for those sins, and, and we're still working on his driving. So, so we'll get to that. But, but Satan accuses us. Jesus defends us. I like what Pastor Chuck Smith has written in his study Bible. He says, every once in a while, someone will come up to me and start accusing me of something that they think I've done wrong or said wrong. I've occasionally responded to them, who is the accuser of the brethren? This usually shuts them up. <laughs> I like that. I think sometimes we, we, we think about what accusations we bring against each other. But my point is, at this point, the devil still has access to God. That is until midway through the Great Tribulation period. As we read in verse 7 of this war that breaks out in heaven, and Satan and his demons will no longer have access to heaven. The day is going to come when God says, enough is enough. I am sick and tired of you coming up here all the time. And, and I'm accusing uh, my, my children. Michael, Michael, the archangel, he says, I know you've been wanting to put an end to this guy for years and years and years. The time has come. Go get him. I love this. Look at verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Get out of here. They got the boot. <laughs> you know, I don't think we, we, we really, really will ever understand the full magnitude of this truth until we get to heaven. Then we'll be amazed when we see the battles that were fought for souls or how deceptive the enemy really was. It's for that reason that Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, verse 9 tells us Satan is described as he who deceives the whole world. Now, Satan always works in one of, of two ways to deceive. That of deception and lies. 
bait and switch. Get us to take the bait and then turn on us when we do. <laughs> oh, it's no big deal. Sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend and, and uh, just, man, what's a little alcohol right now? Just come on, have one or two or three drinks or, oh, you're a little drugged. Uh, take the bait and then after you do, oh, you scumbag. I can't believe you, you call yourself a Christian. Uh, it's a deception of lies. There's only weapons of battle against us. But he has no power over those of us in Christ Jesus. And we see here finally in verse 9, Satan is cast out of heaven. We're going to come back to verses 10 and 11. We'll close with that. Uh, we'll drop down to verse 12. Again, if this were a movie, we would be seeing, meanwhile, back on earth, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. So when Satan finally has no longer access in heaven, he's thrown to the earth, he's kicked out of heaven for good, he's going to go on a rampage on the earth with cunning wickedness. He's going to focus all of his attacks during these last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period. Let me tell you this. Satan knows even right now that his time is short, that his judgment is sure. It's for that reason he's going to do all that he can to unleash the powers of hell and to bring as many people down with him that he can. You know, I grew up with a, a built-in swimming pool in our backyard and, and uh, maybe when you were young and, and, and someone would try to throw you in the pool. For me, I would grab everyone that had a hold of me and they were all going in with me. If I was going in, they're going in. And I tell you, that's what Satan's strategy has been and continues to be through deception, through lust, through drugs, through alcohol, through compromise. Whatever he can do, he's going to try and bring you down. But understand the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Don't give in to his lies. Don't give in to his deception. Well, Satan doesn't like it when he loses. And as a result of being defeated by Michael, he's thrown out of heaven. He's really angry. Now he's down on the earth. Look at verse 13. Now when the dragon, Satan, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, the Jewish people, who gave birth to the male child, obviously Jesus. When Satan realizes he's unable to accuse the, the believers in heaven, he makes his last attempt to ruin God's prophetic plan, goes on a full-out rampage against God's people, but he's not successful there either. You can't thwart the plan of God. It's, it's God. Because we see Israel's protection. Look at verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and a times and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Eagle's wings are a symbol of God's protection. This speaks throughout the Bible of God's faithfulness and deliverance of his people. So he makes a way for these, these Jews to escape. But Satan is right on her tail. Look at verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So Satan, through the Antichrist, will spew his hostility and all of his anger and everything built up after being thrown out of heaven upon the Jewish people, those that have come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. He's going to chase them down with his armies to the Antichrist, armies to pursue them. God, in the meantime, is going to open up the earth and swallow them all up. 
Not, not the, 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 the Antichrist armies are going to swallow them up. Now, you know that's happened someplace else in Scripture. We know that it has. You don't need to turn there, but, but it's found in Numbers chapter 16. A group of people rebelling against God and against Moses and felt like they knew better how to run things. We'll call them Korah and the gang. You know, they, they came to Moses and they said, my paraphrase, Hey, Mo, who made you the big enchilada? Who put you in charge? You know, you're not the only one that can run the show and call the shots. Uh, I would be much better at doing this. And, and that's when Moses says, okay. Everyone that sides with Korah, stand over here. And everyone that sides uh, for the Lord, uh, stand over here. And, and, and let's see. And all of a sudden, Korah and the gang began to feel the earth move under their feet. Felt the sky tumbling down, tumbling down, tumbling down. And down they went. The earth opened up, swallowed them up. Core in the gang, the earth then closed up upon them. Swoosh. I can think of Moses standing there probably dusting off his hands going, okay, anybody else? Lord took care of him. Giant sinkhole. We see here, right here, the earth is going to open up once again and God is going to protect his people. Well, because of that, Satan now turns his anger on those that didn't get away. He's just, just enraged evil beings, seeking anything he can devour. Look at verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, those that have come to faith in Christ. The, the, the Jews, there's going to have 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. They're going to be sharing the gospel. There's going to be offspring from that. People are going to come to faith with that. He says, who keeps the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's going to keep going. Sadly, Israel once again is going to face a time of persecution. All these people have gone through so much historically, tremendous persecution, the Inquisition in Spain, the slaughter by Hitler. They, they, they've, they've experienced so much persecution. And, and, you know, there's people who hate them. They don't even know why they hate the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism is a wicked, evil thing, but it's so prevalent and it's just going to get worse. Again, after the result of the Antichrist fell attempt to wipe out these Jews, they were fleeing. Satan through the Antichrist will turn his frustrated rage against every follower of Jesus Christ that he can find, Jew or Gentile alike, and he's going to seek to destroy them. And again, we'll see that when we get to chapter 13. We'll read of this Antichrist, who I personally believe is alive in the world today, about ready to come onto the scene and take over. I believe the only thing keeping him from coming onto the scene is we, the church, and that we're still here. But we'll see all that when we get to chapter 13. But I want to close now by jumping back to verses 10. And 11. And look at those who overcame Satan because it gives us three points in our walk on how to overcome Satan as we close. Listen, we are living for Christ seeking, we who are living for Christ seeking to follow Jesus, we're waiting for his return. We know that the devil has no power over us. Look now at verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to, to the death. Very important verses. How did these believers that came through this trying time of testing survive? Three ways. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. First thing we see is they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus, as the kids 
brought out this morning as the Lamb of God that was slain to take away the sins of the world. He also accomplished victory over Satan through his death and resurrection. And now because of his victory, we have victory over our enemy as well. Triumph over him. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I can approach God. Because of the cross, I am an overcomer, which unknown to Satan at the time he was actually sealing his own fate, as I said before. The very plot he thought to destroy uh, the Lord ended up destroying him. Number two, it says they overcame him by the word of their testimony. You know, once a person comes to faith in Christ and, and they realize that they have access to God, their sin has been forgiven, they're born again, they have the hope of heaven, they're going to want to proclaim it. They have a, a testimony. And that's how you overcome the devil. Look what the God has done in my life, a testimony. And number three, they did not love their life even to death. Listen, if you love this life instead of eagerly waiting eternal life, then you're living in spiritual defeat. Paul says to live as Christ, to die as gain. Living the Christian life means completely selling out for Jesus Christ without compromise. It means surrendering and turning everything over to Him and asking Him to take complete control of every aspect of our lives. See, as we close, you'll probably never see a Christmas card with a picture of a seven-headed dragon trying to devour a baby in a manger. That Christmas card just wouldn't sell very well. But that's the behind-the-scenes story. That's Christmas from a heavenly perspective. It's not sleigh bells and ice skating and, and warm woolen mittens and whiskers on kittens. It's about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's Christmas and Easter all wrapped up in the one package where God gave His ultimate gift to you and to me. We're told in John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God not, did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's what it's all about. And if you're here this morning and you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, please don't wait another moment. You need your sin forgiven. You need to be born again today that you can live with Him for eternity. Live with the hope of heaven in your heart and in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Lord, because in every avenue of our lives, Your Word speaks to us. Your Word talks to us. Your, your Word lets us know what's going on in our lives. And Lord, in this story that we have, this true story we've seen from a heavenly perspective, Helps us to see the battle that's going on at this present time, Lord. But Lord, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, Lord. But they cannot overcome us. Because your word says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. No weapon formed against us can prosper. Why? Because of what you did upon the cross, Jesus. We're so thankful for that. We have victory over sin, victory over temptation. We have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of new bodies, a new earth. God, you are so good to us. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again. Lord, please help them to realize time is short. They need to get right with you. Complete surrender, not holding anything back. Thank you, Lord, for this time Lord, I pray for this coming week as we celebrate the true meaning of Christmas, that you give each and every one of us as believers to uh, articulate, to share the hope that we all have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.